So Psalm 3 and 2 Samuel 15, I think, is the first chapter there. So let's get our positions, and then we'll read through the whole psalm. I got it. Psalm 3, verse 1. Well, before verse 1, we see uh, the heading, uh, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's why we're in 2 Samuel 15. Verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lie down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you, help, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Alright, so Psalm 3 uh, gets more personal with David than the first two. Um, the first two don't even actually, they, they don't have, they're not accredited to him in the Psalms we know we read later in the New Testament that Psalm 2 is given, uh, they give credit, the New Testament writers give credit to David in there. But Psalm 3 is, as we see in the title, it's a psalm based out of what's going on personally in David's life. And I'll be honest, I'm terrified of teaching and preaching through those types of psalms because that's like what's going on with David. And so we have to, we have to see, we have to sort of dig a little bit to find the truth of what's going on with David the reality of David's situation, how he approaches the situation, how he engages with the Lord in the situation, see the principles there, and then perhaps think about them from, from our perspective. Um, so we have to kind of understand a little bit about what's going on between David and Absalom, who's his son. Now, long story Real long story short, starts all the way back. Really, it sort of kind of uh, begins with David's time, David's affair with Bathsheba, his conspiracy, his plans to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and ultimately he does kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Uh, Bathsheba and David have a baby together, and ultimately we hear from Nathan as he rebukes David in his sin. Um, that the baby will die. And we see that at the end of 12, or sorry, somewhere in 12. But then we see the birth of Solomon out of that. And then also we roll over into 13 and we meet other sons and daughters of David, uh, mainly Absalom, uh, Amnon, and then Tamar, who is a, a daughter of David. Now, if you read 2 Samuel 13, 
you see a really messed up family. Okay, We've, We see the sin of lust and incest, uh, deception, um, all happening between uh, David's family. Amnon is lusting after his sister Tamar takes her, um, defiles her, and ultimately, as it comes down a couple years later, Absalom murders Amnon because of what had happened. Right? Really messed up family thing going on. Um, Absalom then is banished from Jerusalem by the king, David, his father. Uh, goes off, then it, it basically gets... Uh, requested that he can come back to Jerusalem and uh, we'll pause there but we'll come back and read a couple things as we look through Psalm 3 so that's the backstory okay that's the backstory now something happens to trigger Absalom to come but to come to de- come at David and Psalm 3 is David's response in poetic form about to the Lord about what's happening. So look at it. He says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Uh, okay, so we've got to understand what's going on, what's happening. Well, Absalom decides to turn on David, his father. Are you all 15 in 2 Samuel? After this, Absalom got himself a chariot. So he's allowed back into Jerusalem, but he's not allowed to come into the presence of the king. And after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, that would be David, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of men of Israel. So Absalom decides he's going to play crooked politician, basically, and stand outside the gate and cut off anybody who's coming, wanting to come and take any questions or queries or judgments needed to the king and say, there's no one there to give you judgment. I'll take care of you. I'll be the person you need. So he's, sort of, he's rubbing elbows, he's kissing babies, kind of that thing, and making all of Israel feel good about Absalom. And that's what he says. Ab, and that's what it says at the end of 7. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Right? Who did Israel love at that time? David. 
David or Israel loved David. Israel stole David stole the hearts of Israel from who? Saul, right? Now Absalom's conspiring to do the same thing, but in a crooked way. Look at verse seven. And at the end of four years, so <laughs> this is a this is deep deception. This is deep deception. Four years worth. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For the servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, which he did, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king, remember this is David, his father, said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Then Absalom went to, with, went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for... Ahathapel and the and uh, Gilanite, David's counselor from the city Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong. And look here, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So, Psalm three, O Lord, David says, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Absalom had turned Israel against David. And it's almost as if Israel had no idea. He'd stolen their hearts from under them like a, like a crooked politician, basically. Four years of deception and deceit. Uh, question. Why is David in this situation? And I, there's, there's two answers that came to my mind when I thought about how David found himself in this situation. Number one, it was partly self-inflicted. You, you, it, okay. You bring your household together under adultery and conspiracy to kill the woman you're sleeping with. You have sons and daughters, and then not only that, you have other wives and concubines, and you build your family, your household on that, you're asking for trouble, right? You're asking for trouble. And and we know that, well, his son picked up this habit of his as well, Solomon. But um, he's feeling the effects of this broken household uh, that he has built this way. But, but and so we have to understand something about the way forgiveness works with the Lord. While we can be forgiven of our sin, you have to understand that it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of that sin. Um, sort of the uh, cliche idea is that, you know, you can be healed from a cut, but the scar stays forever. Right? The consequences of your sin, even forgiven sin, affect people, affect you, affect your family. So you can't 
then you can take this into relationships. Just because you've been you've been forgiven by somebody doesn't mean that the hurt is gone or the pain is gone or the results of your sin. Uh, your sins will. I mean, when you say your sins will find you out, the consequences of your sin will always be there. And this is happening to David. He's reaping what he sowed, right? Um, David's now think about it. Now, d- d- what? Think about what David did to uh, Uriah. Now, basically, David's son is conspiring to to overtake him and likely kill him. Uh, but the second the second thing of why David's in the situation is is simply wickedness will always rise up against the purpose of God. Who made David king? God did, right? That was God's decree. He was God's anointed. And you read through Psalms, and you even read in the Old Testament, you see wickedness always plotting and purposing to frustrate the decrees of God. Always. That's what wickedness does. That's what it wants. Now, here's the tough pill to swallow. Sometimes... I don't know want to use that. God uses the plans and purposes of wicked men to deal consequences to those who are his, like David. Okay? Israel dealt with that constantly when they would be overran by uh, enemy nations and kings. God would say, uh, give me a name. Uh, was uh, Assyria. God would use the wickedness of Assyria's hatred of Israel as punishment to Israel's unbelief, right? Um, a lot of that you can find in Isaiah. Uh, and so those two things can go together, the wickedness and purpose of men, of evil people trying to f- frustrate the work and decrees of God. Uh, and sometimes that's actually the consequences of self-inflicted sin by the people of God. And so that's pretty basically where David is right now. Um, You can remember Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, ultimately, in that original context, that's David. That's David. Okay, so, verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Uh, here's a, Go back to 2 Samuel. This is an interesting little passage here in 2 Samuel 16. So, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God, or no deliverance or no help. Uh, the thing we have to understand is when we read David... Talk about, well, we'll get there in a second. 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. So we remember, we're talking about those who are saying there's no salvation or help or deliverance for David in God. Verse 5, when King David came to Bahirin, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. That's interesting. Whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. 
and he threw stones at David. And this is in the middle of all this is that's happening with uh, Absalom, okay? So all this is taking place, and Israel knows what's going on. Um, and they threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you on avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Nana, nana, boo, boo. That's what he's doing. He's turning to David and saying, Huh, it's your turn now, bud. Now, we know that he's just bitter because David took Saul's spot. And David didn't do it out of deceit or sin. David was anointed king by God, and he became king in a righteous way. But we have the you know the kin of, of Saul who's still bitter and is mocking David. And that's the reference, and you could read the rest of that and and see how David handles it, which is it's it's a really good way the way he handles it. But basically, that's the mocking that he gets. And so in verse 2 of Psalm 3, he says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, we on this side of the cross see the word soul or salvation, and we think, oh, okay, eternal soul, justification. You know, he's talking about salvation in that sense. Well, no, he's not really. And that's the, the NASB doesn't say salvation, it says help, and the KJV doesn't say salvation, it says, no, it says help in the KJV, and deliverance in the NASB. What they're ta- what that really is saying is David saying, they're mocking me, and they're mocking me to the point that it bothers me internally. He's saying, and th- what they're mocking me about is that I'm so far in it that not even God can save me from all of this. And it hurts me to the core what they're saying. That That's the purpose. That's the point of what he's saying. It's not about the salvation of his soul. But we could make a connection to that as we think in New Testament terms. Especially as we look at the rest of Psalm 3. They are mocking. The mocking that they do are, is piercing to his inner being. Because they are mocking his relationship with the Lord. Not even God can help you, can deliver you, can save you from the situation that you find yourself. Now, question, how can we look at this through our eyes? Well, David's got physical enemies. Is anybody trying to kill you guys? Anybody trying to take your throne? You know, it's kind of weird to think about it as we think about David's personal psalm. But from a New Testament perspective, we have enemies, okay? Now, and we, we could go through many verses, but here let me just name a couple and maybe look at a few verses. We as Christians, we as Christians, remember that we're going to emphasize that word, followers of Christ, we have enemies. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't need the armor of God, right? Like why would why would the Lord tell us to put on the armor of God if we didn't have people, if we didn't have enemies trying to hurt us? Now, let's look at that for a second to see who that is. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 
Now, if there's there if there, there could be a major difference. Well, let me. How do I want to say this? A major difference between a truly biblical, mature Christian and an immature one is the difference in their realization that they're fighting a battle, that they're in a war, that they have enemies. Ephesians 6, I said 5, I meant 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what David's sort of wrestling with now in Psalm 3. But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places or the heavenly realms. Notice the enemy there. Not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the enemy. And not only is, is it Satan and his minions, but it finds itself in the shape and the form of the world. And that's why Jesus... In his last teaching and conversation with the disciples in the upper room says, the world will hate you. The world will persecute you. The world will, um, yeah, that's that's basically it. If they hated me, they will hate you. Now, people, ultimately what we're talking about is rulers and principalities of the cosmic level, those who uh, reign in darkness around us. Um, but not flesh and blood. We're not talking about flesh and blood like David is. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and just, I'm going to skip a couple and just go to the final one. Another enemy that we have, uh, you deal with daily. Anybody guess what it is? Yourself, yeah, your flesh, right? Um, Romans 8, Paul tells the, the Romans to put to death the deeds of the body. Paul tells the Colossians to put to death what is earthly in you. You better believe you're at battle or at war with your flesh. Um, definitely. Definitely at war within your flesh. Now, we'll find enemies uh, in flesh and blood, people around us who might hate us for the sake of Christ. We might find people who love the princes and principalities of darkness. But here's one thing that we have to remember, which is really hard. What did Jesus say about our enemies? We should love them. We should love them. Now, that doesn't mean we have tea parties with them. doesn't mean that we sing songs with them. But perhaps we should... So when we think about the love of Christ, how does he love? Through humility and giving of himself, right? So just something to think about.
Okay, back to Psalm 3. How does David deal with the things he's seen in verse 1 and 2? Probably my favorite two verses in this psalm, verse 3 and 4. Eh, maybe second favorite. Now, look what he says. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So, two things I see there. Number one, verse three, meditation. Meditation. Number two, in verse four, prayer. That's what he does. So, kind of think about it in steps here. The first thing he does is he takes himself out. He takes David takes himself out of the situation, and he sets his mind upon solid ground. Because what's going on around him? It's rocking, it's rolling, it's waves, it's crashing. I mean, everything around him is going crazy. It's like he's out on the boat, on the water, and nothing is still. He can't get his bearings. So what does he got to do? He has got to land the ship. He's got to get off the ship and onto shore and set his feet on solid ground. How does he do that? We see it in those first four words. But you, O Lord. Absalom's doing his thing. Israel's chasing after Absalom, falling in love with him. Absalom's got people yelling at him, mocking him. And he has to just set himself out of it, out of the craziness of the world, out of all the things that are happening around him, and say, but you, O Lord. That's solid. That's where I can get my footing back. Sometimes we get out of sorts like that, and we have to get our bearings and set our feet on the solid rock. That's one reason why we come together Sunday by Sunday. That's one reason why you need to be in private worship with yourself, with your family, reading your scripture and prayer. That's why we have our men's meeting and our women's fellowship. That's why we have a Bible reading plan. All of that to draw you out of the wishy-washy stuff that's going on around you and find yourself back before the Lord on solid ground. But you, O Lord, right? That's the first thing he does. And then he meditates on this truth of God. And look what he says. He, he says, the Lord is my. So he's thinking, acknowledging in his mind, but you, O Lord, you are a shield about me. What's a shield do? Protects. So I got all these people running around acting crazy, but I got you, O Lord. You are my shield. You're my protection. Then what do we see next? He goes, you are my glory. Now that's a little, that's a little bit more difficult. You are what's good in me, is what he's saying. You're what makes me worthy of anything. You know the phrase uh, uh, for a husband and a wife, oh, she's my better half, he's my better half, right? She's my that, That's that sort of that idea. That I'm not any good apart from that other person. Well, that's what David's saying. He is my whole being. He's what makes me worthy. Glory is weight, um, as in I. It was in I can't. I couldn't find words to it. But just think, weightiness. It's what's true. God is His glory. There's nothing. 
David doesn't glory in himself. He glories in God. Uh, he says, you are the lifter of my head. Now, that's kind of weird. Um, but look at Job 10. Job helps us understand that language a little bit. So turn to the left to find Job. Job 10. What does it mean, you're the lifter of my head? Now, you could think, oh, they're his head down because he's sad. Well, yeah, probably. That's I. That's probably a good thought. You know, we see our kids, they messed up at something or they failed at something and they put their head down and what do, what do we do as parents? We... We encourage them, and we put our hand under their chin, and we lift their head up, and we 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 uh, raise their spirits a little bit. But when you think about David in this situation, and he's got people telling him that you're uh, what did Shimei say? He got Shimei saying, "The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned." The Lord has given the kingdom to the hand of Saul. You are evil. The evil is on you. You are a man of blood. Now that would make you draw your head down and be like, I'm, am I guilty of that? So Job, what did I say? 10, Job 10, verse 15. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right... I cannot lift my head up. If I am filled with disgrace and looked on my affection, why is he hanging his head? Because he's guilty. David says, you know what? You're the lifter of my head. You're the one who pronounces my guilt. Not them. You're the one that pronounces me righteous or innocent. Not them. Um, and so... You know, our kids, they put their head down when they do something wrong before their parents, and we as parents can lift them up. The same thing for the Lord and His children. But at the same time, uh, this language is also used, I'll read it, you don't have to turn there, in Psalm 27, and this is David. He says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. So... God gives victory and lifts up his head in front of all his enemies. So there he's meditating in Psalm 3 on who God is. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. That's his meditation. And then what does he do in verse 4? Here's where, here's where we must not falter. He cast his cares upon God in prayer. I cried out to I cried aloud to the Lord. That's prayer. Prayer's not you getting in some weird position or trying to say this humble right worded prayer. It's a crying out unto God. For whatever reason, whatever situation you find yourself in, he cast his cares upon God. And of course we know we know what Peter says, and I'll read it. You just hang, hang where you are. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It sounds kind of a lot like David's situation, right? David's getting ran out of his own country. And we find, if you read his response to Shimei, 
he does humble himself, and the Lord does ultimately exalt David. But it says, casting all your anxieties on him. Casting all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Why does he cry out to the Lord? Because he knows the Lord cares for him. And we see that the Lord answered me, or answered David, from his holy hill. Now, the outcome, as we wound up here. The outcome. What's the outcome of David's meditation and prayer? Verse 5. Rest and peace. I lay down and slept. All of Israel's after him, and he takes a nap. You know why? Why can he be restful and peaceful? What is the result? What is the... How do you get rest and peace? Faith. Faith. Think about a chair. You can be very tired and be standing next to a chair. And believe that that chair will hold you up. And you can stare at it and still be tired. And believe that that chair will hold you up. When can you find rest in that chair? When you trust in it and sit down. Then you can rest. Then you can have peace. The, uh, the result of faith and trusting God is rest and peace. Verse 6. Well, he says, I woke again from his sleep uh, for the Lord sustained me. Uh, the Lord kept him for another day through his sleep. Verse 6, the, uh, the second outcome. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. What's the, the second outcome? So the first was rest in peace. The second is courage. Courage. Now this one, uh, what's the result? How do we get Courage. How can you be courageous as a Christian? You have to have knowledge. This is kind of a weird way to think about it. You cannot be courageous in life without knowing the Lord, His ways, and His promises. Because the Lord, His ways, and His promises is what gives you courage. Right? That's what allows you... That's what allows David to stand and live before the many thousands of people because he knows God and the promises of God. Um, you know David was very familiar with Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the laws of that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may be, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. The only way Joshua is going to be strong and courageous as he took Moses' spot and takes the Israelites into the promised land is if the book of the law did not depart from his mouth, and he meditated on it day and night. And what was that going to tell him? It was going to tell him of the of who God is, the works of God, and the promises of God. And that was going to give him courage to go into a, a land full of giants, right? The land of the unknown to them. So courage comes from knowing God, his ways, and his promises. Now the, uh, the last outcome comes in verse 7. This is amazing. This is, again, I've, I've said this multiple times. 
the beauty of poetry that comes from the Word of God, how how God writes through David and how David's inspired to write so beautifully. The, sec- the, the, the third thing is confidence. Now, confidence in the Lord. Now, here's, what we're, here's how we're going to finish. Look at verse 1 and now compare it to verse 7. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And how does he finish the psalm? Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you shall strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. He goes from uncertainty in verse 1 to confidence in the Lord in verse 7. Why? Simply because of God. Verse 2 compared to verse 8. They mock him in verse 2, saying, God can't help you. You're in it too deep. And he ends in comparison in verse 8, jokes on you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not you. He's my help. He's my deliverer. He's the one who makes that call, not you. I have confidence in the Lord and salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing, Lord, be on your people. He ends the psalm in rest, courage, and confidence in God. So you must know who God is. You must know his promises. And you must trust in who that is. Now, we think all about this when it comes to the New Testament, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to read one passage and then we'll close. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting on the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcisions of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Uh, So we sang this morning, we have victory in Jesus. We have confidence in the work of Christ. We have courage to live covered in the blood, uh, counted righteous, And we can be restful and peaceful no matter what the situation is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise be to the Lord for that. Let me pray.